This message first aired on the radio on January 15th, 2004. We come to the close of the Epistle of Romans, the 16th chapter. We see some salutations to many that Paul knows, even to some that he does not know. And we learn a little bit more about the work of the Apostle, the formation of the early church, and the affections that he has, and actually a couple of interesting points about ministry that we're going to use this opportunity to discuss. So here we have a list of names. We're going to look at the first 16 verses of Romans 16, and we'll read it, and we have a list of names and discussion and accolades and other footnotes that the Apostle gives to each. So we read in verse 1 through 16, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sancria, that you receive her in the Lord as become saints, and that you assist her in whatsoever business she has need of you, for she has been a succorer of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles, likewise the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinetus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia unto Christ. Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also before me were in Christ. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Salute Apellus, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of Aristabulus. Salute Herodian, my kinsman. Greet them that be of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Salute Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Salute Philologus, and Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints which are with them. Salute one another with a holy kiss. Now we have this section of scripture, and our tendency would be to read right over it or right through it, but we'll slow down a little bit for a few minutes and make a few notes. First of all, let's look at Phoebe, who's commanded first. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, a servant or a deaconess of the church, which is at Sancria. So apparently there was a church in Sancria and at that location, and here was this Phoebe, a sister, because we see no husband named here, apparently a single sister in Sancria who gave herself to the work of the Lord. Now, of course, single sisters can be single-minded in their service for the Lord, and they have more opportunities to serve in the ministry of the Word of God. Now, how does a sister serve in the ministry of the Word of God? Well, I find it very interesting that this one is picked out, and she's called a deaconess. Now, the word deacon means servant or minister. It is one who serves. If you care to have deacons in your church, of course, there's a couple different forms of deacons. Some deacons are elders in training, in which case they must be men. But a deaconess is a servant who's no elder in training. She's never going to be a leader in the church. She's never going to be a preacher in the church. But she is a servant of the church. And here the apostle includes her in his work. And likely, she's named first here, I think it's very likely she is the bearer of the epistle. She's the one who carried the letter. And so she's commended. Now, she's commended to be received and to be helped 
verse 2, that you receive her in the Lord as become saints, and that you help her or assist her, or that you stand by her in what business or things, practical matter, she has need of you, for she has been a succorer or a protectress of many and of myself also. So here she is a protectress. She is someone, this sister Phoebe, whether young or old, she's a protectress. That means she has influence or money, probably both. And she used what God had given her and made her to protect the believers. And many times God can call women in to protect the believers. You see it all over the scripture where a woman tries to protect a believer. In fact, you see Pilate's wife actually trying to protect her husband and the Lord, where she warns Pilate not to have anything to do because she was troubled in a dream or so forth. Of course, that's not the church. She's not a believer. But we see women of influence for good or evil in the scripture acting in conjunction with the work of the Lord. In one place, we see women of influence helping to stir up a whole city against the Apostle Paul. That's something else that wealthy and influential women do. They also have the ability, as landed people of influence, to destroy the work of God, and some do that. This sister doesn't. This sister serves in the ministry, though she's a woman of means, and she has the ability then not only to protect the believers, and of course that was all manner of practical things that she would be involved in to do that, but she was also free to travel in a company, and she didn't travel alone. She traveled in this company along with Aquila and Priscilla, apparently, from Corinth to Rome to carry the letter. Now it says a sister. That does not mean that she's the boss. She's not going to rule over any men. She's not going to rule over any women. In fact, she's not going to take up authority and rule in the church, but she is here under the apostles' authority, and he tells them to assist her. Now he also says, verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ. And I've been places where much is made by the fact that in this instance, Priscilla is named before Aquila. And as if she's the leader of Aquila, or she's the one who teaches Aquila, nothing would be further from the truth about this couple. This is a couple that helped the apostle in Christ. This is the couple whose home we see whose home, verse 5, likewise the church that is in their house, was used for the assembly of the believers in Corinth. This couple is the couple who, Aquila being a tent maker, who labored with Paul, took him in because he was of like profession, and who the apostle educated in the faith. And they became very close as the apostle lived in Corinth for a year and a half. Well, we'll see more of that when we study the epistle of the Corinthians. But here apparently this group, at least these three here, Phoebe, Priscilla, and Aquila, are sent to Rome. Now, you want with the letter. Now, you want to know why it is that I think Priscilla's name first. I think Priscilla's name first because he named Phoebe first. He named Phoebe first because she's carrying the letter and she would be first in their notice. And I suppose she had a close relationship with Priscilla. Well, there you have at least what I think about this passage. And certainly, uh, we don't take a passage as so many do to contradict the scripture, which says, I do not allow a woman to teach. And that's just flat. A woman is not allowed to teach. The reason a woman's not allowed to teach is because she is subject to deception. So a woman is not to teach in the church. 
Well, you say, well, what about teaching younger women? That is not teaching the church. That is teaching younger women how to love their husbands, care for their children, so forth. It has nothing to do with the ministry of the Word of God in the sense of teaching it. Of course, Phoebe had to do with the ministry of the Word of God. She carried it from Corinth to Rome. And those who use this passage to promote female leadership, especially when men do it, be wary of these fellows. Be wary of a guy who moves more among the women in the church than the men in the church. A brother before God will move as a brother with the brothers in the church. He'll be a man among men. He won't lord himself over the brethren. Neither will he move against the brothers with the sisters, as so many do. Neither will he set his wife up to be some kind of an associate or assistant pastor in the church or anything like that. Be aware the Bible owns nothing of that, though it's practiced commonly in our day. Well, we go on now and notice that these are commended because they laid their necks down. They risked their lives. And let me tell you, the commendation of God comes from sticking your neck out in the faith. If you're going to associate with Apostle Paul, you're going to have your neck stuck out. And, of course, they lay their necks down. What that means, they lay their necks down, somebody might just chop that neck off. This has to do with risking your life. For my life, they risked their lives. That's what the Apostle says in verse 4. And he gives thanks to them for that. And also, all the churches of the Gentiles, because wherever Paul went, there was trouble, and these people were at great risk. And not only the church of the Gentile, but especially the word greet in the King James Version in verse 5, likewise greet the church that is in their house. That word greet shouldn't be there. Likewise, the church that is in their house laid their lives down for the sake of the apostle. Well, and they risked their lives. Salute my well-beloved Epinatus, who is the first roots of Achaia unto Christ. We go on. We look down here now at verse 7. Salute Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Now, here these two, Andronicus and Junia, I think they're two men. I don't believe that Junia there is a female form. The case here allows that this could be a masculine name, and I think it is because these were imprisoned. They're fellow prisoners. Now, being thrown in prison is no small deal. And by the way, here it says, by the way, they're captured in war, is what this term means, that they were captured in war. This has to do that they're soldiers for Christ. They're men of war, and they've suffered accordingly for it. And it has ever been a mark of a preacher to be arrested and to be harassed. Of course, it's done illegally, it's done wrongfully, but if you're a preacher and you happen to be listening, don't be shocked if you spend a night in jail or if you get your fingerprints taken or if the police cuff you and for preaching God's Word because it does happen and we ought to be warned. I was helped some in my days of street corner open air preaching by one of the works of Charles Spurgeon called Lectures to My Students. And in there, he advises preachers, be prepared to be arrested and be prepared to be otherwise abused in the public forum when you make known the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, here were Andronicus and Junia, apparently believers, therefore at Jerusalem before the Apostle Paul was in Christ, and they were notable among the apostles. They earned their reputation as suffering for the faith. 
Well, we move along and we find a couple of other interesting notes that we can make. In verse 10, it says, Salute Apelles, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of Aristobulus, household. That's how it reads in the King James Version. Now, that word household, in this case, is not in the Scripture. It just says, them which are of Aristobulus. And many have used these kind of phrases where it says that somebody's household, greet their household, as if God brings corporate salvation to households or corporate baptism to households so that you baptize the entire household. But we don't have households in our society as these households were in ancient society. And we need to see the difference. Our households in America today, especially in these northern climes where most of you are that hear this broadcast, our society does not have the extended household of the Roman Empire. Some countries do have these extended households where effectively servants, employees, and so forth are all really part of the extended household. And that's what he's talking about here. We don't know if Aristobulus is even a believer. These people are simply of his household. Likewise, there are those of Narcissus, which means they've been incorporated in some enterprise, probably economic, of Narcissus. That one in verse 11. Well, notice also in 11, salute Herodian, my kinsman. Here the apostle has some kinsmen. Of course, Andronicus and Junia, who were fellow prisoners, were also his kinsmen. And probably this doesn't mean that they're Jewish. This probably means that they're closer to the apostle Paul and that they are his relatives. Now, it is no surprise that the relatives of the apostle Paul would be saved and would be notable in the work of the Lord. You ought to see to it as best you can that your own household is saved. I had a great privilege in my Christian life, in the first five years of my Christian life, had the great privilege to bring the gospel to my family, to my parents, my brothers, my sister, and all of them receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I'm not boasting about that. That is normal Christianity. That is the way the Word of God should travel, inside your household. And, of course, then it will go to your extended household and those with whom you have contact, including your employees, as is the case of the household or the enterprise, we might say, of Narcissus and Aristobulus. Though even they may not have done the evangelism, the Word of God spread within that entity. Preach the gospel to the fellow next to you at work. That's the application. Now we have Tryphena and Tryphosa. I think one thing that's of interesting note, and then we'll just leave this passage, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Now this Rufus very well may be the son of the Cyrenian, Simon, who carried the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 15, 21, we see about him. Well, we'll be back in just a minute to explore further this last chapter of Romans. Turn to the second section of Romans 16. We look at the middle of verse 16, and we see the churches of Christ salute you. So, in other words, there's a returning salutation in behalf of all the churches of Christ to those who are in Rome. Now we have verse 17. I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they are such that serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. 
as the apostles beginning to wrap up this epistle, he brings an extremely stern warning to the believers. And he brings this warning concerning those that are among them. And no surprise, this decline, this departure from the faith, this seditious activity inspired by Satan, who not only is our enemy of our souls and a liar, but he's a sneak and a counterfeiter, the enemy of the church, which was being formed at this time, brings about these kind of men who, whether they're his own or not, or just listening to him, they do this. They cause divisions and offenses contrary to the teaching which you have learned. Now, contrary to the teaching that they have learned, we need to understand that there is base teaching in the Christian life that when men oppose it and create divisions and offenses that are contrary to it, or really this word offenses is stumbling blocks, this has to do with forming factions. When this goes on in the church, these men are not to be followed. They're to be avoided. They're to be shunned. They're to have no reputation in the church, whatever their ability may be. Now, these are not men without ability. In fact, it says that they have good words and fair speeches, and they deceive the hearts of the simple. Well, of course, the simple are part of the weak. Well, simple, it's an unhappy term in our language as the vernacular has come to be. The connotation of simple, you may think simple-minded, but it says here they deceive those who don't want to harm anybody. These men are malevolent and deceive those who are not malevolent. So you need to distinguish between who they are that are causing the divisions and offenses as compared to maybe those who happen to be following them. Well, it tells us, mark them, mark them. Now, that plainly is to mark them out or to point them out. This is to make them known. I've been in churches in my life where divisions are going on and no one wants to name names and talk about those who are causing divisions and offenses contrary to the teaching which we have learned. Yet, they should be pointed out so that the believers, those who are weak in faith, can know that these people are being opposed and that these people are not following the will of God. Well, here he says, I beseech you, this is an urgent plea, mark them which cause such divisions. Now, I've known many good teachers, and I've known, well, I've known a few good Bible teachers, and I've known a few solid shepherds who love the Lord's people who fail, by the way, to do this to mark them which cause divisions. Now, what kind of divisions and offenses are these? Well, they're not divisions and offenses that are created because of the Scriptures. If you have an erring church, if you have misbehavior going on in the church, and someone has the gumption, like Phineas, to stand up against it and to point out some kind of evil doing or wrongdoing, that may cause a faction, that may cause a schism, that may cause somebody to say that they're offended, but in fact, it is not a division nor an offense contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. In fact, it is an attempt by someone to try to correct. Now, some schisms happen by men just simply with an agenda, and we'll see more about that in 1 Corinthians where we'll study schism in some detail, because we need to study schism in detail. Schism marks the entire face of Christianity, bottom to top, side to side, front to back. Division, schism, 
That's what we see. And if we look at the anatomy of it, there's no problem that has happened in the Christian world, in the Christian life, even in our generation, that is not fully and satisfactorily addressed in the Scriptures so that we can conduct ourselves in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And this Scripture didn't end in Romans 16. It started, Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Turn away from them. Get away from them. I'm reminded of those who opposed Moses inside the Levitical system when they burned strange fire. They came to Moses. Moses prayed about it. And the thing he told the people was, get away from these guys because they're going to be swallowed up into the earth. And anybody that didn't get away from them got swallowed with them. You find someone who is creating divisions and offenses contrary to the scriptures, which we have learned, avoid them. Get away from them because when the earth swallows them, up, you don't want to go down with them. And of course, you can just say it this way, you don't want to go down with them. Now, maybe their judgment won't be in this world. Maybe it'll be at the judgment seat of Christ, where the conflagration of that time will burn every work, and they'll have nothing or near nothing. They'll be saved so as through the fire. Well, if you don't want to be with them in that judgment, turn away, get away from them, let them burn alone. For they are such, and here's how we can notice them, they do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but instead they're serving their own belly or their own desires. And there are very many out there who serve their own bellies, their own desires, their own hidden deep interests. There are so many. There are few, really, today who serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and there are very many with their own agenda serving their own desires, usually desires that are hidden from you. But here the Scripture lays it out. may be hidden from your sight what their desires are, but the Lord tells us when you see them creating divisions and offenses contrary to the teaching what you've learned, then you know that they are not serving the Lord, but they are serving their own selves, their own bellies, their own desires. And by good words, now here's the thing, by good words and fair speeches. Here they have nice words. This is flattering words. Somebody starts flattering you, be careful. Appreciate the brother who tells you the truth in love. Appreciate the brother who tells you what you don't want to hear. Appreciate the brother that doesn't flatter you, but that is thoughtful of you but clear to you about the scriptures. Listen to that fella, because flattery is deceptive, and flattery is manipulative. Here these fellas, they flatter, and they give fair speeches. Well, you know, most preachers today prepare speeches. Most preachers today prepare speeches. Now, I won't say there's anything wrong with preparing a speech. Hey, a well-prepared speech is a lot of work, and if you need to work on your delivery of it, that's all well and good. But a preacher ought to be able to just preach. Now, that's not what this is about. Here it is to point out that just because someone is a well-accomplished speaker and has nice things to say about you and others, that does not mean that he's a servant of the Lord. In fact, this is the way that harmless people are deceived. Now, I'm broadcasting this message. It's on the internet. It's archived. It can go anywhere in the world at any time. It could be heard 20 years later. It could be heard live. But let me tell you that I'm speaking to many harmless people who none 
nonetheless can be deceived. Now, I've spent considerable time on those two verses because it is going on everywhere. And you can notice it, and you can be armed. And what do you do about it? Turn away from those fellas. Now, if they're running your local church, or if you're in a non-local church, maybe you're in some kind of corporate tentacle apparatus, turn away from them. And if you have to get away to turn away, then get away. Verse 19, For your obedience is come abroad unto all. I'm glad, therefore, in your behalf, but yet I would have you wise concerning that which is good, and harmless concerning evil. And, of course, this is the repetition, really, in principle, and in just a different word, that we're to be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. This now put this way, I would have you wise concerning that which is good, that is service to the Lord Jesus Christ, and simple or harmless concerning evil. Let me just tell you, the detailed knowledge of evil never helped anyone. Don't tell me you need to study evil in order to fight it. You don't. And who told you to fight evil anyway? You resist the devil, he will flee from you, you need to be delivered from evil. In fact, there are times where it's an evil to resist it. So here, understand, God wants us wise concerning that which is good and harmless. Not wise concerning evil, harmless concerning evil. That is, that we don't participate in it. And now it tells us with a promise. This is now advice with a promise. Listen, brother, sister, conducting yourself wisely in the context of your Christian associations is much of what God will judge the value of your Christian life for. Who you associate with really matters. Who you associate with in the Christian life really matters. And it's part of the spiritual war. And we're all warriors in a spiritual war against wicked spirits in heavenly places. And if you follow this advice that he's giving, here's a promise that goes with it. And the God of peace shall crush. Actually, this word means, it says translated bruise in the King James Version. That's an unhappy translation. The God of peace shall thoroughly crush Satan under your feet. And it says here shortly, and we think that means shortly in time. So we take this, and if we misunderstand it, we believe that we start saying, well, the apostle thought the Lord Jesus Christ was coming any day. I don't believe he thought that. In fact, anyone who knew what the Lord Jesus Christ said to Peter knew that until Peter died, the Lord wasn't coming because he prophesied of the death by which Peter would die. But what he really is saying here, it's not shortly in time, but swiftly, or literally it should read this way, the God of peace will thoroughly crush Satan under your feet with great speed, with great speed. Now, it may take time. You may have to wait. The Christian life can be long. Your sufferings can be long. But in comparison to eternity, it's a brief momentary affliction that is upon you. And when God finally brings his triumphant church home and rewards each one who deserves a reward according to what he has done, Satan will be thoroughly crushed with great speed. In fact, we find out in the book of Revelation that when Satan is cast out of heaven, he has great wrath because he knows his time is short. The Lord waits long, he's long patient, but when he moves, he moves with sudden speed and he brings swift justice. Now he says after that, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now, here he's actually closing out the epistle, but we're going to have a little P.S., or a little footnote to this epistle, which we want to get to. Before we do, let's just look now at who signs with him, as it were. Here he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timotheus, my work fellow, or my fellow worker, my fellow laborer, 
Timothy. This harkens back to the first chapter of Romans. And Lucius, now this is not Luke, this is Lucius. It's probably Lucius the Cyrenian who served with the Apostle Paul in the church at Antioch where Paul was first called with Barnabas. So, and Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman, salute you. And there's Sosipater. That's another kinsman of the Apostle Paul. So you see, he was effective in his family and he reached many in his family and they joined him in his labor in the faith. Now it says, verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote the epistle, salute you in the Lord. So who's Tertius? Is he the author? No. He is a penholder. He is the amanuensis. He is the hand that scripts while the apostle dictates the letter. You say, well, why would that be? Well, the apostle had somebody write his letters here in this case, in the book of Galatians. He doesn't have an amanuensis, but here in Romans, he has an amanuensis very possibly in order to script it in a way that will be easily read by the Romans. So this is Tertius. He gets to stick his little greeting in there, and he says, Tertius, who wrote the epistle, salutes you in the Lord. Of course, it's not given the first person, but as it says in the King James, I, Tertius. But Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salutes you in the Lord. Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, salutes you. Here we see now he's hosted by Gaius, and here Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, salutes you, and Quartus, a brother. And so here this chamberlain of the city, this is the city treasurer, or the city steward, and the apostle is moving also with men of some influence. I think that's the exception and not the rule. And now it's as if the epistle finally closes off in verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen, but there's more more and we'll hear it when we come right back after this brief announcement and a song. Romans has befuddled and puzzled a great number of Bible students over the years, and you don't get a lot of help, by the way, reading commentaries on the Bible. Maybe there are a few good commentaries out there. If there was one I could recommend to you, I would do it, but I don't really find any good, reliable commentaries on the Bible. There's a piece here, a piece there of men who write, who do well, that have helped me, but I don't want to recommend to you any armor or any help in the Scripture that hasn't helped me, and besides the use of the companion Bible, I haven't really found a piece of literature that helps me a lot in the Scripture, although I do have a small but high-quality library of books about the Scriptures. Well, in any case, that befuddlement about the end here of the book of Romans is apparent fact that there are two endings. Here it ends in verse 24, as we just stated a little bit ago. There seems to be a closing where after Tertius is introduced to us as the amanuensis of the epistle, there's some greetings, and it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And then there is something of a another close, actually, a second closing, which is best understood, I believe, as a P.S., to the book of Romans. Maybe something added later. In fact, it could have been added significantly later. I don't know about that. The manuscripts of the scripture themselves 
do seem to have some indicators that this was added later. The overall structure of the book, as divinely inspired, can lead us to conclude that this is essential for the completeness of the epistle, and it is a part of the epistle. I don't think there's any question it's part of the epistle. The only question really is, when was it done? In the vast number of the manuscripts, it's there. There's maybe two or three or four where you don't find it, but overwhelmingly, it is there. Now, this is verse 25 and 26 and 27 of Romans 16, so we'll look at that, and then we'll examine why it is that this is there to get our attention, because it does get our attention. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but it now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, or literally here, not so much the scriptures of the prophets, but the prophetic writings. This is the graphe propheticos. In fact, this is a better term for what we can commonly refer to as the New Testament writings than the term New Testament writings, the graphe propheticos, or the prophetic writings. In fact, if we just call them the prophetic writings after the Lord's ascension, we would certainly be ahead than calling them the New Testament, but it's a bit late, isn't it, in history and in language to get that change made. But I advocate to you not to change your language, but to understand understand this point that the New Testament books really are the prophetic writings of the scriptures since the Lord's ascension, and it doesn't have anything to do technically with what a testament is. Now, here it says it's made manifest by the prophetic writings according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all the peoples or nations for the obedience of faith. To God be only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Now, this is a tack on. It's an obvious sort of tack on. Maybe the apostle thought about this before he sent the letter out. The letter was all ready to go. Phoebe was packing. Aquila and Priscilla maybe packing up with them, getting ready to carry the letter. And the apostle said, well, I'm going to add this, inspired, of course, as he was by the Holy Ghost. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel. Now, but what really focuses in here for us is verse 25. It says, to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Here it is. According to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. Now here, the apostle talks about this mystery, and he is compelled, really, compelled to make a special emphasis of this, a special emphasis of the mystery kept secret since the world began. That is to say that from the time of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 until the inking here in the 16th chapter, now whether this was inked while they were getting ready to carry the letter or whether this was inked possibly even after the letter had been inaugurally sent, but before it became compiled into the scriptures. Some believe, in fact, this was inked after the epistle to the Ephesians was written, because it so much connects Romans to Ephesians. Now, we've said that there are more secrets than just one, but the secret concerning the mystery hidden here apparently is the mystery or the secret of the church, which is his body. Now, these secrets that are in the scripture, the secret of the church, which is his body, the secret of the partial, temporary blindness of Israel, the secret of the rapture 
of God's people and their translation. All these secrets that are disclosed in the scripture due to the clericalization and the priestcraft that invaded Christianity and the departure that invaded Christianity in the first century, the teaching of these truths, which are right there in the scripture to be seen, has been almost completely overlooked throughout Christian history. Now, you say, how is that possible? They're right here in the Bible. Well, my friend, ask yourself, have you been taught? Have you heard from the pulpits that you visit? Have you heard from the teachers that you know in the Bible studies that you've attended that the gospel of Jesus Christ is never hidden, but that there are mysteries or secrets in the scripture that have been hidden, and they're narrowed to a few topics, and the Apostle Paul's ministry was really substantially all about that? No, you don't hear that kind of thing. You just don't hear it. And it's amazing, but true. Now you say, how can it be hidden when it's right out in the open? That's what these secrets are. They're disclosed in the scripture, but they're hidden. No matter, no surprise. This is what happened to Israel, after all. Ears they had, but they didn't hear. Eyes they had, but they didn't see. So here he makes a special notation, just sticking right out there to get our attention, that there is this mystery which has been kept secret in verse 25. A mystery kept secret. Now there's two things. This word secret, it says been silent. There's nothing discussed about it since or from the, what's called here, the period of time known as the foundation of the world or since, we could say, secret, since the world began. Now, why would God keep it secret? Well, God had to keep it secret, by the way. God had to keep it secret so that he could make a real and true offer to Israel. He had to keep it secret so he could make a real and true offer to Israel. We are befuddled by this, maybe, if we don't understand the whole context of Scripture. But God made a very genuine and real offer to Israel after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, a real offer for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back right away and set up his kingdom if Israel would repent from what they had just done to the Savior and receive him. It was a national offer, and the apostles brought it. That's why when they asked the apostle, they heard his preaching, they heard Peter's preaching, and he said, you have crucified the Holy One, and they were pricked to the heart, and they said to him, what shall we do? Well, now what do we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and God will bring times of refreshing. He'll bring about his kingdom. If you'll repent nationally, you'll bring his kingdom. How could Peter preach that in faith? God had to keep from him the truth of Israel's partial and temporary blindness. You know, I can't preach something in faith if I know something else. I cannot preach the gospel to you effectively. I can't tell you, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved if I'm absolutely certain that you won't believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So the Lord withholds from me whether you will or will not believe. I don't know whether you'll believe or not. I'll preach the gospel to you and lo and behold, you believe, and I found out you were chosen in Christ Jesus from the foundation of the world, and that you were one of his elect and chosen ones, and I just happened to come across you. Now, I didn't know that until you 
believed. So you see that God in his great mercy to the preacher and so that the preacher can act in faith hid this secret from them while the kingdom was still being offered to Israel nationally. Now when they rejected the kingdom offered nationally, and we see that at the end of the book of Acts, then and only then do we see the full truths being given to the Apostle Paul and laid out in the scripture concerning the great secret, especially concerning the church, which is his body. Now, all throughout the book of Romans, we don't really see that. We see the churches, of course, but we don't see no distinction between Jew and Gentile. In fact, what we have seen in this study of the book of Romans is a distinction between Jew and Gentile. You Jews receive you Gentiles, you Gentiles receive you Jews. Each one is convicted, one without the law, one with the law, so forth and so on, so that if we don't take into context the entire scripture, we would think that the church can function like it did in Rome with a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. But no, that's not correct. It can't function that way because we don't live in the partial truth of the early church. We live in the complete and total truth of the scriptures, which includes the great mystery which was kept secret since the world began, and by the way, which has substantially been lost in the churches of God. Substantially been lost. All these secrets, substantially lost. You say, well, I've heard it before. Well, that's fine. That's great that you hear it. I don't say I've got some new thing. I say this is some old thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Here it is in the scripture, a great mystery, a great secret, kept secret since the world began. Now, time references in the Bible is a marvelous subject. I think that oftentimes we overlook what the Bible actually says. We don't interrogate the scriptures. One of the things we need to do is to look at the exact words that the Bible uses, because oftentimes they're rendered in such a way in our translations as to take away from shades of meaning. That is why a shepherd of the Lord's sheep, when he's going to feed them, needs to be able at least to use proper tools so that he can examine what the scripture's actually saying. Here in this time reference, this reference, since the world began in verse 25, this is the time reference of time of the ages, or Prochronion Aeonian. And this is the time of the ages. In fact, God has spun ages out. This is what the book of Hebrews is about. God not only created all matter, but God also created time. He organized the ages around the Lord Jesus Christ. And from the time that God has spun the ages out until the now of Romans chapter 16, verse 26, something was kept secret. And this was this great mystery concerning, really, the church, which is his body. Now, it doesn't say that here, but we learned that from Ephesians. And if you're listening earlier, you know that we have the opportunity to understand the things that had been hidden from before. Well, it says now, verse 26, now it's made manifest. So from the time that God spun out the ages, and God spun out the ages just after he created the heavens and the earth, he spun out all time, from the time that God spun the ages out until the time of the writing of the prophetic writings of the New Testament, this particular truth has been hidden. And because it was hidden, then you'll be careful not to find it everywhere as you read the Old Testament. You'll be careful not to find it every time you look. And you'll be able to overlook, for example, the oftentimes misleading headings in your Bible when you read the book of Isaiah where it's talking about Israel and the subtitle 
title says something like, The Church Professeth Its Love for Christ. And you'll realize the great distinction between the three groups of people that God has, Jew, Gentile, and Church of God. But here, verse 26 is just as wonderful. Now it's made manifest by the prophetic writings. And so when we look at the scriptures, we should look in specific in the New Testament scriptures, or what we call the prophetic writings, or what the apostles call the prophetic writings. We should be looking for these mysteries and to understand what it is when things are in mystery form. Well, that's all we have for today. May God bless you. We'll be taking up 1 Corinthians next. It tastes a lot better, if you're listening to this broadcast, to read 1 Corinthians before we go through it. Next time, we'll be in 1 Corinthians. We'll do a little bit of an overview. And may God bless you until that time as you meditate in his word.